0: Now we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and that you would breathe life into your word to us this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as uh, we mentioned in the announcements, next week we will once again be celebrating a new year as we welcome in the season of Advent, which is the beginning of the new year in our liturgical church calendar. You may have picked up that uh, over this last year, we've celebrated New Year's a bunch of times. Uh, We kicked off the fall last year, the start of the new school year, with our top 10 New Year's resolutions, journeying through the Ten Commandments. Last year, we also celebrated Advent, the new year in our liturgical calendar. And then, of course, welcomed in the new year of the Gregorian calendar, on January 1st, you may start... To believe that I really love New Year's parties. But what we didn't do, as you may have noticed, is celebrate many New Year's Eves, right? And this is because I actually don't love New Year's parties. I've always found New Year's Eve celebrations to be a bit of a letdown. Uh, this was especially the case when we were younger, when Becky and I used to go off to New Year's parties with our friends, and I'd always arrive with these expectations that we were going to have a really special, exciting time together. But then it always ended up being just the same old, same old, like every time, sitting around, eating the same old appies. We all brought the same dish. And then the boys would eventually go off and start playing video games. The girls, I don't know what they did. I I was playing video games. But then we'd usually end up watching a recording of a New Year's party that happened a few hours ago in New York. Yeah. Yeah, Why? (laughs) Until the famous ball drop when uh, we might have a toast with some really cheap champagne, cheer a little bit. Uh, That that part's all right. And then we just go home. So all in all, a, a bit of a letdown, a bit disappointing. And of course, as we have observed over the last year, New Year's Day isn't always that much better. It's meant to be this day full of fresh new potential when we make resolutions of how we're going to turn our lives around uh, in the new year that then inevitably ends up uh, disappointing us as well, as we just continue on with the same old, same old. Um, Yes, at our parish council meeting, it was observed, I'm no longer a young pup, and You see, the idealism of my youth is starting to give way to some jadedness of age, but uh, this isn't an introduction to a sermon series on Ecclesiastes just yet. If you know, you know, yeah. Today is the last Sunday before Advent. So in some ways, as we come to the end of our liturgical year, it is our New Year's Eve. But it's a New Year's Eve that... Many forget to celebrate. Many in the church don't even know it exists. And that really is too bad. Because in our church calendars, New Year's Eve, we observe something that is far from a letdown, far from disappointing. And that's because this is the Sunday that we celebrate the ultimate glorification of our Lord and Savior Jesus as the Christ, the King. We celebrate that Jesus wasn't a disappointment, that though he may not have been the King of the Jews that the people were expecting, he was and is the King of so much more. So today we're going to look at what it means when we call Christ the King when we kicked off one of the other New Year's in the fall, we began journeying together through the words of the Creed, the Church's shared statement of faith, our shared statement of what we believe as Christians, as followers of Jesus. And through the years so far, we have affirmed that we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the one who saves, that Jesus is Lord, that we take our orders from Him We trust him to give them to us. We have affirmed that Jesus is fully God, co-equal and co-divine with the Father, but also fully man, fully human. And we've affirmed that we believe that for our sake, for us, and for our salvation, Jesus suffered. Under Pontius Pilate, was crucified and died, a real bodily death, truly was dead and was buried and descended to the dead, the place of the departed. But we've also affirmed that we believe that Jesus conquered death, that on the third day he rose again, his tomb was empty, and after this he spent 40 days visiting and teaching his disciples and many other eyewitnesses. But today we affirm that After those 40 days, Jesus left them. In our reading from the Gospel according to John this morning, while on trial before Pontius Pilate for allegedly claiming to be the king of the Jews, Jesus proclaimed, My kingdom is not of this world. This morning, on Christ the King Sunday, we are gathered to affirm that this is true. But after he rose again from the grave, Jesus, as we affirm in the words of the Creed, ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus ascended into heaven. He was taken up out of human sight, still in his human bodily form. He returned in his humanity to the glory that he had shared with the Father before his incarnation, before the word became flesh, and there he remains. He is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Well, what does this mean? What does it mean for Jesus to sit at God the Father's right hand? The throne on the king's right hand was traditionally the seat of the one appointed to exercise The king's own authority. So when we say Jesus is at God's right hand, we're not talking about seating arrangements in heaven. We're affirming that Jesus is ruling with his Father in heaven. He's not the Father's right-hand man. He's not God's assistant, as we have already affirmed. God the Father and God the Son are one, co-equal and co-eternal. And this means Jesus rules as the Father rules over everything. With the Father in heaven. In our reading today from the opening to Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, Paul explains that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, granting him rule and authority far above all rule and authority and power and dominion anywhere else, certainly anywhere on earth granting him rule and authority above every name that is named. The name of Jesus has greater power and authority than any other name. Jesus has greater power than anyone else, anywhere else, certainly anywhere on earth. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Not only now, but for all time, until the end of time, and for what follows the end of time. For all eternity. But what does this eternal, heavenly sovereignty mean for you and me here and now? Well, a few weeks ago, we reflected together on how confessing Jesus is Lord means confessing, or meant originally confessing that Caesar was not which was treasonous in the days of the early church and could quickly land you in jail or worse, condemned to death. And then we had a little fun acknowledging that now the same is no longer true, that very few of us have any problem confessing Justin Trudeau is not Lord, and doing so, thankfully, won't land us in prison. Something for which we should be thankful uh, and, and should probably direct some of that gratitude to our Canadian government. It's hard as it may be. However, we also acknowledge that confessing that Jesus is Lord also means that we are not. That this means essentially that we take our orders from Jesus. That being a Christian, a disciple of Jesus, following Jesus, walking in his footsteps, means constantly seeking and discerning his will, his direction. And then obeying it. Going where he leads us. And we observe together that the one thing that unites Christians throughout the world and throughout history is that we do confess Jesus is Lord. Today we're gathered to recognize and celebrate that he is also our King. And so we continue to affirm that this means that we take our orders from him, not ourselves, We also need to remind ourselves that this also means Jesus doesn't take his orders from us. Jesus doesn't take his orders from us, and that's something we sometimes, sometimes, often forget. This is the reason that so many choose or decide not to believe in a God who doesn't rule the way they would rule. They can't believe in a God who isn't them. And what this really boils down to is simply disobedience, saying to God, I won't obey you unless you ask me to do what I want, i.e. unless you obey me. And if we look at it from that perspective, we see how backwards and nonsensical it really is. Jesus is not our servant. We're gathered here today to remember and celebrate that Jesus is our King. Jesus is the Christ, the one who came to save, and today we affirm that he is Christ, the King, the King of the Jews, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Son of God, the Word made flesh, God incarnate. God doesn't take his orders from us, we take our orders from him. Jesus, through whom all things were made, as we read in the opening of the Gospel of John, remains Lord Over all creation for all eternity. As Paul explains in Ephesians, God put all things under his feet. Then Paul goes on to specifically explain how this applies to us, saying, And God gave Jesus as head over all things to the church. Jesus is our King, is Lord over all creation, and the head. Lord over the church, over all who accept Him as their Lord and Savior, over all who are gathered together to worship Him as their King. Our catechism, our guidebook to what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to be a citizen in Jesus' kingdom, in the kingdom of God, explains that God has granted Jesus authority to equip His church. To advance his kingdom, bring sinners into saving, fellowship with God the Father. And finally, to establish justice and peace upon the earth. So again, let's ask ourselves, what does this look like for us listening today? The first thing is that we do always need to remember that Jesus is the King the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And this means he is worthy of reverence. 1 Chronicles 16.29 reads, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Who he is and the things he's done, bring an offering and come before him to worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. A couple years ago, I shared how the English word worship comes from the old English word worthscipe. Worthscipe as in worthship or worthiness. Jesus is worthy of our reverence, of the glory due his name. And this means he is worthy of our worship. And so we do worship Jesus. And how we do this is presented to us in the Venite in our prayer book from Psalm 95, that we say together at our morning prayer services, at our 8.30 service. Venite is a Latin word, and it means come. Psalm 95 is an invitation. It reads, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Again, a couple of years ago, we looked at this psalm and we saw that it does begin with this invitation, this call to gather as God's people to our place of worship. And the call begins with an exhortation, a summons, to sing for joy, to shout aloud loud and enthusiastic acclamation of who God is and what he's done. The kind of acclamation, cheering, that is fit for the king, who is the savior of his people. It's the unashamed, enthusiastic applause for the one who has saved us. It is the glory due his name. And this morning we began our worship together with that invitation to rejoice enthusiastically exuberantly i find that song to be rather frantic enthusiasm i'm still a bit out of breath from singing it with you i even took my sweater off knowing <laughs> that we would be enthusiastically worshiping god because as the psalm continues in verse three we worship god because The Lord is a great God and a great King, above all gods. In His hands are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are His also. The sea is His, for He made it, and His hands formed the dry land. God is celebrated as supreme over all other gods. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. God the Father with the God, God the Son is the one who created the earth, the mountains, and the sea, everything. And this is why our King is worthy of our praise, our thanksgiving, our adoration, and our worship. This is why we remember that Jesus is not just a man from Nazareth. He is God incarnate, the Son of God, the Word made flesh. Jesus is not just a great prophet. He is The Christ, the one who came to save, is not just a teacher. He was and is our sovereign Lord, the Christ, the King, the King of Kings. And what a privilege it is, therefore, that the King, as the Lord of the Church, also invites us into relationship with Him, into intimate relationship with Him. And this is why verse 6 of Psalm 95 presents us with a second call, summons, exhortation, a second invitation. It's an invitation to a change in posture. The psalm continues, O come, let us worship and bow down, let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. This is an invitation to recognize in awe that the supreme God over the entire world, the creator of the universe, our King, has invited us into relationship with him, to spend time with him as he cares for each one of us personally. These verses from Psalm 95 illustrate this intimacy of just spending time with Him. This is how we approach our worship, with the desire to know God, to come into His presence and meet Him and be with Him and spend time with Him. This is the deep desire of our worship because without it, all the joyful noise of the gathering loses meaning. So we come into his presence with enthusiastic praise, with joy and thanksgiving and singing. And in his presence, in peaceful silence and reflection, in worship and adoration, we kneel at his feet, bowing down in humility, reverence, as we recognize that the Supreme King of Kings is our God who takes care of us and loves us And we are his citizens, his subjects. We're also his people. We are his sheep in his care. And so we see through this that Jesus is not some haughty, aloof, callous, ethereal, absentee ruler. Just sitting there on a fancy throne next to God, just watching how things (coughs) unfold on earth after he left. Though Jesus did leave this world and ascend it into heaven, he did so for a purpose. He did so for us. Catechism asks us, what does Jesus do for you as he sits at the Father's right hand? And the answer we're given is that he ascended into heaven so that through him, his Father might send us the gift of his presence, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it is through the Holy Spirit that Christians together are united to Christ, our King, the living head of His body, the Church. And so we can and should take great comfort in this, because it means we are never alone. Though absent in body, our King, Jesus, is always with us by His Spirit. And Scripture assures us that He is always there for us, that He hears us, when we come to Him, when we pray. You can always come to Him in prayer, and not only does He hear us and listen to us, not only do we have the ear of the King, He intercedes for us as well. As Paul writes to the church in Rome in Romans 88 verse 34, Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is, interceding for us. Just as John writes in his letter to the church in 1 John 2, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And because of this, as our catechism shares, because Jesus intercedes for us, we may now boldly and with confidence approach God the Father and offer our praises and thanksgivings, our confessions, and our requests to Him. Because Jesus ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, because His kingdom is not of this world, Jesus' heavenly ministry means that as we continue here on earth in our everyday lives, we can rely on Him to always be present with us by the Holy Spirit as He promised. And we can and should always look to Him for help as we seek to serve him as we seek to serve our king so today being christ the king sunday is the culmination of the gospel story that we journey through each year through our church calendar and it is the day that we celebrate the glorification of jesus as king but today we also celebrate that this culmination of the gospel story is not the end It's just the beginning. We celebrate that Jesus' glorification was not just for his sake, not as a reward for what he went through on earth, not as vindication for his suffering. Jesus was glorified for our sake so that we might be glorified with him. Because our celebration of Christ the King comes with the promise that though He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Even so, he remains with us by the Holy Spirit. And even so, he will come again. So as we come to the end of this liturgical year, we celebrate that it marks the beginning of another. It marks the eve of the season of Advent when we prepare to welcome our King. And we do so with the assurance that we will not be disappointed, that though we do not know the day nor the hour, God keeps His promises, and Jesus has promised that He will come again in glory to finally establish justice and peace upon the earth, and His kingdom will have no end. So now in the words of the collect. For the Sunday of Christ the King that marks the end of this year and the eve of another, let's pray together again. Almighty and everlasting God, whose will it is to restore all things in your well-beloved Son, the King of kings and Lord of lords, mercifully grant that the peoples of the earth who are divided and enslaved by sin, may be freed, brought together under his most gracious rule, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever.